Part Two, Section One of the Sinking of the Merrimac by Richmond Pearson Hobson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two, The Runion, Section One, containing disappointment at the recall, a day of waiting, the plan of going in at sunset, two elements of weakness, Mullen's pluck, kindness of officers, goodbye to the flagship. THE LOOK OF THINGS, REHEARSING THE WORK, CLAWSON NOT A STOWAWAY, PRECAUTIONS FOR RESCUE, THE LAST MEAL ON THE MERRIMAC, AND FINAL PREPARATIONS. WHEN THE TORPEDO BOAT PORTER OVERTOOK THE MERRIMAC AND DELIVERED THE ADMIRAL'S IMPERATIVE ORDER TO RETURN, ONE COULD SEE A CLOUD OF GLOOM AND DISAPPOINTMENT PASS OVER THE MEN. NO ONE SPOKE A WORD. Every man lingered near his post for some time, not wishing to make the effort necessary to get into a position of comfort. I knew how the men felt. A fearful reaction had set in. I remember catching hold of a stanchion on the bridge and leaning my head back against it as the ship swung round. Mullen soon came aft, looking like a spectre, haggard beyond description. Charette was sent down to tell the engine force that the run was off. Mr. Crank appeared at the hatch, stripped to a breech-cloth. He was expecting to go in with the ship, and the reaction had seized him also. The situation must have appealed to the men on the torpedo boat, for before she left us, Lieutenant Fremont hailed with some kind words of sympathy. I told Mullen to have all the men lie down, and suggested that he do the same. He objected for his own part, and insisted that he be allowed to relieve me, and that I lie down myself. It was necessary to give him a positive order. The reaction took a different form with the boy Degnan. Nature's fatigue set in. Seeing a tired look come over him, I took the wheel and ordered him to sit down, and soon he fell asleep as he sat. I made him lie down on the bridge, and he went off into a deep, motionless sleep, utterly unaffected by the hailing and the other noises that set in later. We stood over to the New York, steered up parallel within hail, and stopped. The executive officer hailed and said a relief crew would soon be over, but asked if we could take care of the vessel till the relief crew could get breakfast. We replied that we would take care of her as long as might be desired. The headway, having carried us forward some distance, we put the helm starboard to steer across and circle back when suddenly the New York started up. Her propeller race began to seethe and she shot by us at full speed. We looked ahead and on the horizon to the southwest discovered a craft standing toward the harbor. Soon the smoke began to pour out of the New York's funnels. The craft stopped, turned about and took to her heels and a chase was on. The quarry was fleet and had ten or twelve miles start. She drew hull down and then disappeared. The New York stood straight on and gradually disappeared, and for a long time the two columns of smoke told of hot pursuit. The porter stood out at full speed to join in, and we saw her cut over the horizon. There would be hours of chase and hours for return. A scorching sun rose high in a cloudless sky. Not a breath of air stirred. A blinding glare came out on a glassy sea, and a day of waiting lay before us. Mullen soon came up again to say that the men could not sleep, 
and to insist on relieving me. I saw that the poor fellow was long past the stage for sleep, but it again required a positive order to make him go down. My instructions were that all the men should lie still in the shade, close their eyes, and think of nothing, whether they could sleep or not. Before long, Charette, indefatigable and always thoughtful, came up with a piece of canvas, a boat cover, and rigged it as an awning over part of the bridge. It was actually exhilarating to watch him do this in his bright, cheery way. When the awning was snug, he went below, soon reappearing with a bucket of water, apologizing because he had not been able to find a glass, and denouncing the strippers for the thorough work they had done in the pantry. This was not the first time he had had a fling at them, for coffee had been in fearful demand all night, and he had searched high and low again and again without finding a grain. The only articles that escaped were some cold meat and bread left by the officers from luncheon. We had finished these for supper, and Charette took it very much to heart that he could find nothing for us during the night. Mr. Crank reported that on one of the boilers a gauge glass had given trouble, so he, Phillips, and Kelly stayed below working on the repairs in the hot fire room. We remained thus till late in the afternoon. The fleet lay off several miles to the eastward and northward. About ten or eleven o'clock the Marblehead and the Harvard stood over, and a boat came off from the Marblehead to get the effects of Captain Miller to put them on the Harvard. Evidently he was to go north. His effects had been put on the Massachusetts before she left us the day before. The boat officer, Ensign Gerhardy, must have seen some evidence of destitution, for he inquired if we had had breakfast and insisted on going over to the Marblehead to get us something. We told him that what we wanted was coffee, black and scalding. He brought off a steaming bucketful with plenty of hardtack, a superb combination. It is inconceivable how revivifying it was. We had been calling aloud for hot coffee, even those of us who were not accustomed to its use. The hours passed without further incident. A press boat passed by and asked to come aboard. The Marblehead asked for the camels or floats that the Merrimack had on board for use in coaling alongside at sea. We told her she could have them if she would send her own men to get them out. Before young Gerhardy left, he suggested that a junior officer might be of service and asked to be allowed to go in with us, necessitating again the duty of refusal. Along toward one or two o'clock, the porter stood back. Evidently the chase had been brought to a finish, or the New York had demonstrated her ability to attend to the case unaided. We signaled the torpedo boat by wigwag to come within hail. The absolute necessity for good conditions of light and the lesser consequences of any difference in the chance of escape had become fully impressed upon me, and taking account of the conditions of the men, it appeared that it would be best to go in about sunset. When the porter arrived within hail, I asked her to go out to the New York, inform the admiral of this conclusion, and request permission to execute it. She said the New York would be along in an hour or two, and little, if any, time could be saved by her going back. So she stood on down toward the fleet, after being requested to apply to the vessels for additional electric firing batteries, so we could put over the four torpedoes left off the belt. The Marblehead had already been applied to, but had no cells to spare. 
We had been drifting farther out, and the Brooklyn signaled to come closer. We were only waiting for the Marblehead's men to get the floats clear, and these were given trouble. New York appeared above the horizon and stood down toward the fleet. Finally, we were clear. The Marblehead, upon application, had sent over a machinist and a fireman, Phillips and Kelly still being engaged in the repair work. We stood down through the fleet and rounded to, ranging parallel to the New York. When within hail, I requested permission from the Admiral to go in at sunset. The answer from Flag Lieutenant Staunton was, quote, The Admiral's reply to your request is a direction for you to come on board, unquote. The New York sent off a boat and I went on board, leaving Mullen in charge. The Admiral and his Chief of Staff, Captain Chadwick, listened to the plan for going in at sunset and seemed to regard it, as well as the idea of going in after daybreak, as involving too much risk and exposure, cutting off all chance of escape. The Admiral having refused my request, I suggested a modification that might reduce the enemy's fire by having the cooperation of the fleet. The plan was that the fleet, including the Merrimack, should form in column and circle by, passing down as far as the bearing forming the course for entering, each time crossing this bearing a little nearer the entrance, fire not to be opened until first begun by the enemy. On the second or third turn, Upon arriving on the course, the Merrimack should break from the circle and dash forward for the entrance. The whole fleet should open on the batteries, which would doubtless answer upon the fleet, and thus before the enemy could recover from the first shock and from the idea that the maneuver meant bombardment, the Merrimack could enter and do her work. After consideration, the Admiral decided against this plan also, holding that the maneuver would cause the enemy to man all their guns and be in full preparation, and that they could divert their fire from the fleet to the Merrimack. Both he and Captain Chadwick still regarded it wisest to make the effort before daybreak. I represented again that a certain amount of light was absolutely necessary for success, that the men were under heavy tension, and that we ought not again to be recalled." It was finally decided that we should wait till the last hours of the moon. But it was agreed and understood that if I found the moonlight too dim, I should be allowed to go in after daybreak without fear of recall. Since the last conference with the Admiral, my instinct had set more and more strongly toward the two elements of weakness, the danger of the steering gear being shot away before the time for putting the helm over, and the fragility of the electric batteries. The thought of the steering gear being shot away had been haunting me all day. Investigation showed that it was impossible to arrange for steering in any other way, and I called the Admiral's attention to this peril as the only one that could prevent the success of the maneuver, for it was absolutely necessary that the vessel should be pointed fair so as to enter the channel without the use of helm, and for this good light was essential. The Admiral said that he had already thought over the matter and fully appreciated the situation, and that the chances were against the steering gear being shot away so soon. In view of the fragility of the firing cells, the gunner was sent over with additional cells with directions to put on the four torpedoes left off the belt the night before. My conviction of the inherent weakness of this part of the plan was so strong that, as a last request, 
I asked the admiral a second time to allow me to take the warheads, promising that I would not use them unless the belt torpedoes proved inadequate and they were necessary to success. The admiral again refused, using the same words as before. They would blow everything to the devil. Besides the gunner and his gang, a deck force was sent over to prepare another lifeboat. This time I decided not to attempt to tow it, but to carry it slung from a cargo boom over the starboard quarter below the rail. The idea was that instead of jumping overboard, the men, after finishing their duties, would lay aft and rendezvous abreast the lifeboat, waiting until directed to get in. All being ready, the suspending line would be cut and the boat would drop adrift. The arms and equipment and the plan for handling the boat would be the same as decided on in the first instant. Attention was called to an old catamaran at hand, and it was slung over the side in a similar way near the lifeboat. As soon as it was settled that the entrance was not to be made at sunset, a relief crew was sent over, and the men from the Merrimack were sent on board the New York to get a little rest and a hearty meal. However, they were unable to sleep and cared for little refreshment except coffee. They were beyond the stage of appetite or sleep. After they arrived, Captain Chadwick called me up to say that he had seen Mullen, and there was no question about his being utterly exhausted. I had feared as much, for he had been working all night and the previous day, missing four successive meals. It is difficult for one not present to conceive the fearful condition of strain, mental and physical, that Mullen was under, when we were fighting against time in the preparations of anchors and chains. With the prolongation of anxiety and without ability to rest, he had almost passed the limit of human endurance. But he was game to the end and would not give up. It required an imperative order from Captain Chadwick to keep him back. It now became a question of selecting a man in his place. When the Iowa sent her long list of volunteers and learned that so few men were required, she selected one man from the number... Murphy, coxswain. There can be no question about a man whom a ship's company singles out to be its representative. It was decided to take Murphy, and I was to determine, after seeing him, whether to entrust to him Mullen's perilous duty. Signal was made to the Iowa to send him over. All remaining details were attended to. The executive officer of the New York thoughtfully directed a basket of provisions and a bucket of strong coffee to be ready, the fleet surgeon prepared two canteens of medicated water. A short while remained before the time for leaving, and I went below for a shower bath. It was deeply touching to see the kindness and thoughtfulness shown on all sides. The caterer had directed the steward's special preparation of coffee, and a cup, black and steaming, was kept ready on the table for the moment of coming below. The orderly came down to say that Captain Chadwick would be happy to have me join him in a late afternoon luncheon, most thoughtful and opportune, for I should be leaving about the dinner hour. One officer had just received some specially fine lemons and oranges. I must try them and take some along. Another had a handsome brace of pistols. Surely they would be better than the bulky service revolver. Still another had a special cordial with virtues all its own, might he not put up a bottle? Captain Miller, who had been assigned to my stateroom, was foremost in cordiality and expressions of kindness. 
but most touching was the solicitude of Captain Chadwick. He did not wish me to talk, for it would require exertion. I must sit down, though he and the admiral were standing. I must lie down and sleep upon reaching the Merrimack. It was in vain I assured him that I was in excellent shape, with pulse normal, nerves steady, if anything a tinge phlegmatic, brain as clear as a bell. In fact, only in second wind, as it were, while the limit of endurance was not in sight. He would not be convinced, and even threatened, that if I did not take measures for resting, he should feel like advising the admiral not to let me go in next morning. In fact, before leaving, he delivered strict orders that on reaching the Merrimack I should remain below and not appear on the bridge before one o'clock. The crew of the Merrimack left the New York about six o'clock. The admiral was at the gangway, the last say goodbye, having again a simple word of kindness, a hand pressure, a look that spoke more than a volume of words. Cadet Palmer made a last plea to be allowed to go, saying that he was assistant navigator, was in practice in taking compass bearings, and would be useful in approaching the entrance, and the admiral and chief of staff approved. Such was his elegant pleading, difficult to refuse, but the same reasons held as in the other cases. As we went over to the Merrimack, the vessels of the fleet were standing down for their night positions of blockade on the arc of a circle around the entrance, about four miles from the Morro as the center. Cadet Joseph W. Powell came to take charge with the relief crew, a pilot being with him to assist in keeping the Morro located. Upon arriving, the gunner reported that three of the torpedo connections would not respond to the test, and in consequence there were only seven for service, these being located in the position of the six of the previous night, with the addition of one aft. Moreover, he had found that the cells would act with better effect if arranged in separate groups, and had so arranged them, with ten cells to each torpedo, the cells lying on the deck abreast the torpedo, each torpedo having thus its own independent contact. In view of the additional security and not having all the cells concentrated in one spot, the arrangement was accepted, though it would require at least one additional man and would cause the firing to be less under my own control, each torpedo having thus its own independent contact. In view of the additional security and not having all the cells concentrated in one spot, the arrangement was accepted, though it would require at least one additional man and would cause the firing to be less under my own control. The boatswain's mate reported that the lifeboat and the catamaran had been arranged as directed, and his gang and the gunner's gang were sent back to the New York before we got under way, the steam launch returning to remain with the Merrimack in order to take off the relief crew when the regular crew should take charge. In the launch in which we came off, a new man was sitting in the bow. Someone said it was Murphy of the Iowa. I looked at him well and felt that there need be no hesitation about giving him Mullins' duty. Powell went on the bridge with the pilot and took charge. The Merrimack's crew were directed to lie down and try to sleep until they should be called. Powell was to have us called at one. In obedience to orders to rest, I went into the bridge house and lay down on the transom. The New York and the Merrimack stood down in company till the New York reached her blockading position. It was interesting to listen to the sounds of the engines of the vessel moving through the water 
and of the voices on the bridge. The two ships hailed several times, and then made a farewell hail as the New York drew off to her position. The Merrimac stood on further to the southward and westward, till she reached a position just outside of the blockading line, with Morro bearing about northeast. Here she lay motionless for several hours, waiting for the time to start. There was a weirdness in the situation as I looked out of the airport from time to time. The moon, now nearly full, rose high and reached and passed the meridian without a cloud appearing in the sky. The Brooklyn lay off to the northwest, and in the reflected light looked almost white. The Texas to the northeast, presenting her shadowy side, looked dark and menacing. The other vessels further in the distance seemed like phantoms. All lights were extinguished, and the moon was supreme in the stillness. The mountains far back beyond Santiago were scarcely visible. The peaks closer to the westward rode higher with a distinct skyline. The mountains continued landward the circle of the ships. Sleep was out of the question. So I went over, to the minutest detail, the various features of the work to be done. The torpedoes, with the new arrangement, were to be fired in succession, beginning forward so as to throw her down by the bow. After letting go the anchor, Murphy was to fire torpedo number one without further orders. Charette was then to fire torpedo two, then torpedo number three. Degnan, after putting the helm hard aport, was to lay down to torpedo number four and be ready to fire by the time number three went off. An additional man was to be selected from the relief crew to attend to torpedo number five. After stopping the engine, Phillips and Kelly were to open the sea connections and flood without further orders and then come on deck, and Phillips was to stand by to fire torpedo number six and Kelly torpedo number eight. Those were hours of interest and experience before the start. There was no diversion of the senses, and this fact and the feeling of loneliness seemed to deepen the impression of the closeness of God and nature. My business affairs had been disposed of at the beginning of the war, and I had no disquieting thoughts as to the past or the future. The mind and heart accepted the reality of things with deep, keen, exquisite delight. There were singular emotions as the thoroughness of preparation and the sureness of execution became clearer and clearer, while the details and the processes were gone over again and again. Toward midnight, when there was no longer any chance of the moon failing, these emotions amounted to exultation, so much so that I could not help giving it expression. Charette had been sitting near at hand, in fact a little while before, when someone in the darkness had made a noise, Charette expostulated in a vehement whisper, "'Can't you keep quiet there?' "'Don't you know Mr. Hobson is sleeping here?' I called out, "'Charette, my lad, we're going to make it tonight. "'There's no power under heaven can keep us out of the channel.' He seemed surprised that the outer channel was the objective, and, and said that he and all the other men thought we were going up into the harbor, that the admiral, Captain Chadwick, and I had been seen consulting the chart which took in the inner harbor, and they all thought that we would go inside three miles beyond the entrance.' Such was the mission for which these brave men had so ardently volunteered. At about a quarter of one, Charette was sent to call the other men and take the bucket of coffee to the fire-room and bring it up steaming. 
About one, I went on the bridge. Powell and the pilot were walking up and down. They pointed out the Morro, just discernible with the night glasses, about five miles distant, bearing about northeast by the compass. A fine-looking seaman was at the wheel. I went close and examined him and said to myself, unless looks deceive, here is the man for the additional work with the torpedoes. Before being spoken to, he asked if he might go with us. What is your name and rate, I asked. Clausen, coxswain of the barge, sir. The rating confirmed my judgment from his looks, and I replied, Yes, you may go. When relieved at the wheel, you will be given your station and duties. The delight in the man's face could be seen in the moonlight. Clausen's inclusion in the crew was thus entirely regular. The report that he was a stowaway was doubtless due to the fact that he was not in the original crew of six determined upon before the rearrangement of the torpedo connections. Powell reported that the Admiral had directed the steam launch, after putting off the New York's men on the nearest blockading vessel, to stand in toward the entrance and stand by to lend assistance to the Merrimack's crew in escaping. This measure had been suggested by me because the Admiral seemed so solicitous about our escape when considering the question of going in at sunset. I had suggested the measure only in connection with the sunset plan, and made no further reference to it when decision was made against that hour, since it was questionable whether the chances of escape were sufficient to justify the exposure of the launch's crew. Powell's report was, therefore, a surprise. It was too late to consult the Admiral again. His decision in the matter must be accepted. I asked Powell if his engines and fires were muffled. He answered yes, that he had put over canvas covers, that the launch's regular crew had all volunteered, and that all preparations had been made. It was interesting to see his own delight at the prospect of the work. We arranged the rendezvous. The launch would creep up from the westward and watch for the appearance of boat or men. If the boat were destroyed and the men could not stand out against the tide running flood, he would endeavor to dash across the entrance for the rendezvous under the seaward side of the Morro, near the mouth of the caverns. Charette now brought the coffee on the bridge. Some sandwiches were at hand. All the crew came up, and Mr. Crank from the engine room, and we had a cheerful breakfast. Even the pipe came out as usual. About half-past one we turned to, and the men went to their stations. I went the round, fore and aft, to go over the duties with each man. Murphy, on the forecastle, was given the same instructions that Mullen had had. In addition, after receiving the cord signal to cut the anchor lashing, and after the lashing had been cut on the starboard side, he was to pass over to the port side and make contact to fire torpedo number one, without further orders. Murphy listened without a word to all the instructions concerning the precautions to be taken in view of the exposure in firing the torpedo, for the forecastle was narrow, and while making contact he would still be in danger from the Russian chain and the breaking stops and hawsers. Moreover, the forecastle had no bulwark or rail, and though high above it he would be exposed to a heavy blast from the torpedo explosion, the collision bulkhead being directly beneath. Indeed, it was intimated that he might be wounded by the explosion even under the best conditions of precaution. He examined the lashing and block under it, saw the new axe at hand, found the end of the signal cord, examined the wire ends for making contact, and replied simply, It shall be done, sir. 
Charette was already familiar with torpedoes number two and number three. Degnan was taken to torpedo number four, Phillips to torpedo number six, and Kelly to torpedo number eight, and each was instructed as to the firing. Montague's duties were the same as for the first run. Degnan relieved Clausen at the wheel, and Clausen was taken to torpedo number five. Phillips and Kelly would have the same duties below as previously arranged. All were instructed about the rendezvous, and directed afresh to lie on their faces, except while executing work, and to pay no attention to the enemy's fire, no matter what it might be. Goodbyes were now exchanged. The New York's men, Powell and the pilot, disembarked. Just then Mr. Crank came up and reported engines and boilers ready for the run, the boilers requiring no further firing. The launch had shoved off and was some distance away, and Mr. Crank repeated the tender of his services to go in. It would have been wrong to accept them. I hailed the launch. There was no reply. Then I hailed again, louder. Still there was no reply. On a still louder hail, it stopped, came back, and took Mr. Crank. Then it was that this gallant engineer left the Merrimack. He had not gone from her for a moment during the whole course of preparations, had not had a moment's rest in two days and two nights, and had been repairing the boilers and putting them in shape while the others were unengaged. He had expected to go in the first day and had passed through all the experience of suspense preceding action. The launch headed for the Texas and was soon lost sight of. Preparation was ended. The road was clear. The hour for execution had come. End of Part 2 Section 1